to see everybody today. I was not chewing gum and preaching at the same time. I just want to get that straight right now. I did have gum in my mouth after the sermon, after I was closing things together. So, uh, I, I, no, okay. just want to get that straight right now. <clears throat> I, I may do it sometime, but I didn't do it today. I may have done it in the past, but I did not do it this morning. Anyway, hey, before I get started, I want to recognize some uh, uh, celebrities real quick in our church family. Reagan Gray, stand up for a second. Where is Reagan? Reagan Gray. Uh, Mackenzie Hudson. Where is Mackenzie? Mackenzie Hudson's right here. Casey Kimbrough, stand up. Casey. These girls are part of the Nature's Volleyball team that just won the state title Thursday, so it's pretty neat to have them. Good job, girls. All right. Well, if you have your Bibles open to Joshua chapter 2 this morning. Lately, we've been uh, in the Old Testament a little more than usual over the last several weeks, and uh, although I didn't really plan on it, it's been kind of a series. There's just been a theme kind of going along with this whole thing, and if I had planned on it to be an official series, I would have titled it, They All Speak of Me. Because in John 5, 39, Jesus is talking to the religious scholars, and he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these, talking about the scriptures, that testify of me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. These religious scholars were reading the Old Testament scriptures the way that even many of us have probably been brought up uh, being taught how to read the Bible as a rule book, an instruction manual, a moral guide, or something like that. They were reading them to find out what they needed to do in order to be in God's favor. But Jesus was telling them that, no, the scriptures are not about you and what you need to do. They're about me. They all point to me. And that's why I always say that we need to read the Bible not looking for formulas or instructions or, or moral lessons or principles or anything like that because the truth is a lost person can follow all those things and still not be saved. The only way we change, the only way we find eternal life is by encountering Jesus. And so we read the scriptures to look for him, to have that encounter with him, and that's what we've been doing with these Old Testament stories lately. We went uh, kind of through the book of Judges to see how it was pointing to Jesus as the ultimate judge. We learned that honoring the Sabbath day is not done today by not working on Sunday. We honor the Sabbath by accepting, believing, and trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. We looked at the Feast of Booths that was reinstated in the book of Nehemiah and learned some things about our salvation today. And last week was the story of Jacob and Esau and what it means for those of us in Christ to have received the blessing of Abraham. This is what Jesus is talking about when he said, they all speak of me. And so like I've said before, this is not a new way of reading the Bible. It may be new to a lot of people, but this is just a recovery, if you will, of the way that Jesus and the original apostles read and taught the scriptures. So today we're going to look at another familiar story in the book of Joshua. And this is one of the most powerful pictures of the gospel that I believe exists. But it's also one of the most disturbing, but at the same time, most beautiful pictures 
of Jesus. In chapter 2, Joshua has taken the mantle from Moses and leading the people of Israel to the promised land. They are now on the bank of the Jordan River looking across at the land that they have been trying to get to for the last 40 years. And Joshua sends two spies on ahead of them to check out the land and see what they may be up against because this was not virgin territory they were going into. There were lots of people who were already living here that God told them they would have to drive out. Now think about that. They had to fight for what was already theirs. How many of you know that we still have to do some of that today? Of course we do. Sometimes we have to fight for peace. I mean, those sound like contradictory terms, but there are so many things coming against us to try to prevent us from experiencing the peace that we have in Jesus. We got to fight against those things. When we looked at the the Sabbath rest that we have in Jesus, we read Hebrews 4.11 that says, let us be diligent to enter that rest. The rest has been purchased by the blood of Jesus and given to us as a free gift of his grace. But we have to fight against all the lies that come at us and try to convince us that we still have to keep working for and earning what Jesus has already done. How many of you know that in order to have a good marriage, you've got to fight for that? Not fight each other. I know there's a lot of fighting that may be going on, but I'm talking about coming together and, and, and fighting together, not, not against one another. Of course you do. If a married couple is in Christ, and I'm telling you right now, your marriage is blessed beyond anything you could ever imagine. Simply by the fact that his blood is covering that. But you've got to fight against all the things in this world that are going to come against that to try to keep you from experiencing that blessing that has already been provided to you. So Joshua sends these two spies ahead to see what they're facing. And the first city they come to is the great walled city of Jericho. Somehow the king of Jericho found out that they were there and he tries to find them. But they have been hidden by a woman named Rahab. She protects them and keeps them from being discovered. The king knows that they have made contact with her. And so he goes to Rahab and asks her where they are. And she just completely lies to them, which was something she was probably pretty good at. And tells them that the men have already left. Now, why would she do that? Why would Rahab betray her own people? Well, as most of you know, Rahab was a prostitute. And being a woman of such ill repute, she probably didn't feel very welcome even among her own people. We don't know anything about her background, but it would be a pretty good bet to say that more than likely she didn't have a very good one. Because no one with a good sense of self-worth would just choose that line of work. This was a lady who had been used and abused by lots of people. She would have been looked down on by others, the kind of woman that would have been the butt of everyone's jokes and ridiculed relentlessly. No one had ever valued Rahab as a person. Men just used her for their own selfish desires. And if that's the people that she lived among, then she would have felt no loyalty to any of them at all. She doesn't have a good reason to give up these spies because it would just mean more of this miserable kind of lifestyle for her to live. Plus, she told these two men that she had heard about them and knew that God was with them. 
She talked about how everyone had heard of their escape from the Egyptians and how God had parted the Red Seas for them to cross and their defeat of one enemy after another that they had come up against. She said that the hearts of her people melted when they got word that they were now knocking at their door. Now Rahab, because of her profession, and probably a good reason why she's in that profession in the first place, is a survivor. She did have a revelation of who God is in verse 11. She knows that he is the God. She knows that because of who he is, her people didn't stand a chance, no matter how strong the walls of their city was. And so she sees here another opportunity to survive. She knows her people are going to be destroyed, people that she has owes absolutely nothing to and thinks that if she helps these two men out, they might spare her in return. And that's exactly what she asked for. She says, since I have dealt kindly with you, please deal kindly with me and my family. We're going to pick up the story in Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. So let's all stand together in honor of God's word. Joshua 2, 14, it says, So the men said to her, Our life for yours, if you do not tell this business of ours, and it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, Go to the hill country, so that the pursuers will not happen upon you, and hide yourselves there for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward you may go on your way. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to which you have made us swear unless when we come into the land you tie this cord of scarlet thread in the window through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head. And we shall be free. But anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your word, so be it. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Let's pray. Lord, I am just so grateful once again for your word and the promises, and the truths, and God, the grace, the mercy, Lord, everything, so many of your attributes that are shown in this, God, and I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes to to see those attributes, God, to know what it means for us to be your people. Lord, I pray that people that have been bound up would be set free this morning, that those who may not know you here, God, would come to know you. Lord, I'm asking for you to move in a powerful way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The city of Jericho, as most of you probably know, was an impenetrable fortress. It had a huge wall that protected it that went completely around the whole city that archaeologists have actually found evidence of. You can go over to the Middle East right now and see where the city of Jericho was. And so the story of Jericho is no myth or fairy tale. 
And from what they discovered, they say that the wall was constructed in such a way that at the base of it, there was this real thick, huge earthen embankment, just a, kind of a dirt wall that went all the way around the base. And the way the, the dirt was held in was by these retaining walls that were 10 to 15 feet high. And then on top of that dirt embankment, on top of that first layer of wall was the, the main wall that extended up from there another 20 to 25 feet and that, that they said was about six to seven feet thick. And so this wall encircled the entire city was at least 40 feet high, seven feet thick, and even thicker around the base at that earthen embankment. So how in the world was the army of Israel going to penetrate that? Well, they weren't. God was going to take care of that himself. So think about that. Their victory was something that only God can do. They were absolutely incapable of breaching this thing on their own. God was going to have to do it if it was going to be done. And so God tells Joshua exactly what the instructions are that he wants to give to the people to do. Now, I just said that this was something that God would do. He didn't need any of the people in order to accomplish this. But just as his nature still is today, he wanted them to join him in doing something spectacular. Folks, God doesn't need any one of us to do anything that he wants to accomplish in this world today. But because he is a good father, he delights in working with his people, them working with them in the things that he wants to do. And to tell you the truth, he'd probably get a lot of things done a lot more efficiently if he just left us out of the picture. But that just speaks to his patience that he has with us and just the, the relational aspect of his nature. And so Joshua relays God's instructions to the people who, after they had heard what Joshua told them, had to have been thinking, wait, what? You want us to do what again? I mean, how in the world is any battle going to be won like that? What he said was that they were all to approach the city, and when they got there, march one time around it in silence. No shouting, no singing, not one word uttered from anyone's mouth. Just simply march around the city one time. And when you complete that one revolution, go back to the camp, spend the night, get up in the morning, march around it again in silence, go back to the camp and continue to do this for six days in a row. And then on the seventh day, you're to march around it seven times. And on that seventh time around, seven priests carrying seven ram's horns, would blow those horns. And when the people heard that, they were all to shout as loud as they could. And God said, then the walls would come crumbling down. Now, just imagine watching this from the perspective of the people in Jericho. Remember, they had already been intimidated by them and were frightened at the idea of them coming. But at some point, someone up on top of that wall would have looked out and seen on the horizon this mass of people gathering. And word would have spread really quickly throughout the whole city. They're here. They're here. And so the call would have gone out for everyone to batten down the hatches and assume their positions and take up their arms and get ready. And they just wait. I don't know if there were very many windows on that wall. There probably wasn't because those would be weak points in the wall for an attack. And so most of those people, they can just listen. 
And they can hear that marching getting louder and louder as they're getting closer to the city. They come as close. They know they're just outside the wall and they're expecting some kind of attack. But then they just hear it continue marching in silence. All they can hear is the shuffling of their feet. Can you imagine how intimidating that would have been? I mean, silence is a scary thing. See there? (laughs) It's uncomfortable. It, It makes us uneasy. We get nervous when there's too much silence going on, especially when there's supposed to be some kind of sound going on. I heard something recently on the current state of our culture that said it takes a thousand words coming at us all at once in order to distract us from the terrible silence within. Pretty good description. A lot of people in our society today. And so day one, all they do is march. Day two, they can just hear them outside those walls. Day three, day four, day five, day six. And you know there were people inside those walls that had to be absolutely losing their minds by now. I mean, just the anticipation and the anxiety that continued to build up. And then on day seven, they had gone, wait, what are they doing? They picked up their pace. They've marched around us once already, and now they're doing it again and again and again. And then on that seventh time, the eerie silence is split by the blast of those trumpets. You think somebody's hair didn't raise up on the back of their neck when they heard that? And then the ground-shaking roar of people just yelling at the top of their lungs. Those walls begin to shake and then just come crumbling down in a heap of rubble. Now what happens next as the army rushes upon the city would be just too graphic to recreate accurately in any movie today. If it was, no doubt people would just get up and walk out. It would be too disturbing. The Israelites were told not to spare a single soul in Jericho. Verse 21 of chapter 6 says, They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. And as if that wasn't enough, when they got done with all that, what was left? They burned, just completely incinerated everything. They wiped Jericho off the face of the map. We can't even begin to imagine the horror of what went down in Jericho. The stabbing and hacking and slashing, the screaming, suffering, and terror would have been enough to just give someone nightmares for years. I mean, this wasn't just the fighting men of Jericho who were slaughtered. It was old people who couldn't defend themselves. It was women and even little children. Cut down brutally with nothing but a crude piece of metal. 
And we read that and we think, why would God allow such a thing? I mean, would he really do that? Is he really that cruel? And some try to explain it away with things like, oh, no, God wouldn't do that. That's not him at all. I mean, he's loving. God would never do something like that. Yes, he is loving, but yes, he would do something like that because he did do something like that. These were his instructions being carried out. And I'm sorry, but there is just no way around that. It just smacks us dead in the face. And we've got to do something with it. So what do we do with it? We don't want to do anything with it. That's why nobody ever preaches about this. They just go on and pretend like it's not there. But it is there and it did happen. And that is a very difficult thing for us to be able to grasp. This is why it is so important to read these stories through the lens of the gospel. Let's think about this. If God wanted to illustrate to us just how serious he was about sin and wanted us to get just a hint of an idea of what our fate looks like apart from him, how would he do that? I think he did a pretty good job of it with things like this. You know why worship, true worship, is so lacking in the American church today? I'm not saying that singing praise songs is lacking. I'm not saying that raising your hands and feeling emotional about a song is lacking. I'm talking about the deep, yearning, Adoration of God where the heart completely loses sight of itself in contemplation of God's glory kind of worship. There's nothing wrong with feeling emotional about a song. There's nothing wrong with raising your hands. But if that's as deep as it goes, then something is. You know why there's not much of that, but there is a whole lot of surface level emotionalism? Because not many people today truly appreciate the depth of the fall and the cost it took to remedy it. God wants us to be aware of it because when we are, we can't help but worship him the way he truly deserves to be worshipped. And so when we look at something as brutal as the slaughter of Jericho, We imagine just the staggering fear those people must have had when something that they had absolute rock-solid confidence in, that their whole security and their future was tied in, just come crumbling down around them. When we imagine the horror of an old man being helplessly cut down or the gut-wrenching agony of a mother seeing her own child cut down, We see the unstoppable, indiscriminate force of utter destruction being unleashed in rage and violence. And we get just a hint, just a hint in all of that. At the horror that every one of us face for our sin apart from salvation in Jesus Christ. 
and we get just a very partial understanding of what Jesus took upon himself on the cross so that you and I wouldn't have to. That's why God did this. So that we might even begin to grasp the weight of the just response to our own sin and depravity. That we might even begin to realize the enormous price that Jesus paid for our salvation. Because when we do, we can't help but worship him for what he has done for us who are so undeserving. And I think, well, well, I I didn't think God hated. Yeah, he does. I've talked before about how in order for there to be true love, the flip side of that is there's going to be hate and anger for anything that comes against the object of that love. I mean, I'll be quick to pour out some rage on anyone who tries to harm my kids because I love them so much. And so would any good parent. The troubling brutality of Jericho shows us the flip side of the enormous love of God and that he loves or, or he has so much wrath for all that would seek to destroy us and keep us from what we were created for. His incredible love for us moves him to pour out his wrath on all that would do us harm. And so when we see the horror of Jericho, we see what God did to our sin on the cross Jesus took. Now, in the middle of all that chaos and destruction and slaughter, what do you think would be the number one thing on a general's mind? Maybe it would be the progress his troops were making, the strategy that needed to be involved, or the, the casualty rate they may have been experiencing. Joshua was the general of this army, and you know what was on his mind in the middle of all this? Rahab. Rahab was on his mind. Chapter 6, verse 22, it says, Joshua said to the men who had spied out the land, go into the harlot's house and bring the women and all she has out there, or all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. The number one thing on Joshua's mind was to keep the promise that had been made to her, which represents the promise we talked about last week that was first given to Abraham and has now come to us. So they go in and they they look for this scarlet cord hanging out of the window. They see it, and they take Rahab and her whole, whole family and start moving them away from all the destruction. Now, the people of Jericho who are still alive would have seen that. And no doubt they would have thought, there goes that harlot, the butt of everyone's jokes, the woman of immorality who foolishly gives herself to whatever loser would have her. They'd see her being protected by these soldiers, taken away from all this destruction and chaos and think, wait, not Rahab. She doesn't deserve that. She's worthless. She, of all people, doesn't deserve to be saved. No, she doesn't. 
She didn't deserve to be saved at all. She's a liar, a manipulator, a traitor of her own people, a woman who is guilty of rampant immorality. No, she did not deserve to be saved at all. Neither did you. Neither did I. We are Rahab in the story. Look at this in Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, it says this. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Basically just says, God saved you when you did not deserve to be saved. Rahab, she put every bit of her hope in a scarlet cord hanging from her window. Her hope to be saved wasn't in her good behavior. It wasn't in her dedication or commitment. It wasn't in any religious ritual she may have performed or anything else but that scarlet cord All she could hope for was that those men would see that cord, remember their promise, and save her from destruction. Our only hope is also in something scarlet-colored. It's the scarlet-colored blood of Jesus Christ. Your hope can't be in your church attendance or your good behavior or your commitment and dedication, or how much service you give to God. It can't be in any promises you may have made to him or deals you thought you struck or any accomplishments you may have achieved. All you can hope for when it's all said and done and you stand before the judgment throne of God is that he will see that scarlet-colored blood of his son on you will remember his promise and save you from destruction. You know, Rahab wasn't just saved from death. She was absorbed into a whole new family. She was given a whole new identity that completely changed in an instant. And I'm sure it took her a while to learn to live in this new identity as part of the people of God. There were some adjustments that had to be made to her life in order for her actions to reflect her new identity. She wasn't just saved from the destruction of Jericho, she was saved to the family of God. If your only hope is in the shed blood of Jesus, you haven't just been saved from hell, you have a new identity that changed in an instant. You became a part of God's family, the chosen people of God himself, and there are adjustments that have to be made in order for your actions to begin to line up with your new identity. 
But those actions uh, or those adjustments become more natural and they become a lot more easier the more we get to know Jesus and the more we fall in love with him. That's why we read the Bible looking for him because when we find him, we do fall more in love with him. And our actions just change as a result. Now I want to end this by showing you just how big God's grace really is. And how much it just does not matter what your past may look like in order for you to receive all that God desires for you. God's view of you and his use of you for his glory does not depend at all on what you may have done in the past. How do I know that? Fast forward from the story of Jericho several hundred years to the book of Matthew. In chapter 1, Matthew begins his book by listing the genealogy of Jesus, beginning with Abraham. Listen to this, starting in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed the father of Jesse Jesse was the father of David the king Rahab became the great great grandmother of King David whose lineage would produce the promised Messiah Rahab was changed by God's grace from a prostitute in Jericho to the very lineage of Jesus Christ Is that redemption and restoration or what? You bet it is. And it is the same redemption and restoration that is made available to each and every one of you. He says here, I've already done it. Just come and receive it. Let's pray. Lord, we just sang the song earlier, you are good, you are good, you are good, you are good. Lord, we see things like this and are just reminded of that. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just begin moving in the hearts and the minds of people in this place right now, Lord. People that you intended to speak directly to this morning. God, I pray for those who just assume that all their hope that you were going to let them in or, or bless them or have favor on them because of all the things that they have done. God, I pray that that confidence would crumble like the walls of Jericho and they will see that their only hope is found in the blood of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those that may be in here this morning that their confidence was all in living life their own way, doing what they thought was right. Lord, would you shatter that confidence? 
Would you show them that their only hope is in you? Lord, would you make us all aware of the deep depravity that you have saved us from, that you changed us from, Lord? Let us see the incredible cost it took in order for our sins to be washed as white as snow, that we may worship you the way that you deserve to be worshiped. Lord, help us to all remember that we were once a Rahab. But for the grace of God, there go I. It's only by your grace that we can stand here today and call us, call, call you our friend, call you our God, our Lord, our Father, the one who has redeemed us, pulled our life from the pit and set our feet upon a rock. One has given us a new name, written our names down in the Lamb's book of life. Lord, we need you. Cry out and say we need you. God, I pray that we would fall so in love with you, we would just jump at every opportunity to join you in whatever work you are doing, whether it be in this church, whether it be in this community whether it be in our own homes, God. Lord, I pray for those marriages that have just been been apathetic. Lord, that you would light a fire in the couples, God, to begin fighting for what you have already provided for them, a blessed marriage. Lord, we just want what you want. Make our desires yours, that you may be most glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.